Next Chapter Podcast. What the fuck is that noise? What is he doing? In there. Ooh. What an interesting song to open up the album with, man. Who knew what instruments he was playing? Was he banging on drawers? Wait until the middle of the episode to find out. The song is called Big in Japan. It's by Tom Waits of his 1999 album, Mule Variations. It's also number 416 out of 500 on the Spotify O-Ridge, the 500 with me. Sup? I'm the King Kadoogle. Fleece Army, how are you guys doing, my little doogly spooglies? I want you guys to do me a favor this week. If you're not listening to this podcast on Spotify, I want you to stop however you're listening to it and put it on Spotify. Listen to the 500 on Spotify. Hook a brother up. Because I love you guys. And it's a great platform. Dude, we had a Wang Zuki of a record this week. First time I've ever fully dipped into Tom Waits. This is a Dougal episode, y'all. You want to know why? Because my guest is the one and only Chris Sullivan. You know Chris from playing Toby on like the biggest show on television, the most cried to show on NBC, This Is Us. If you don't know him from This Is Us, maybe you saw him in The Nick, maybe you saw him in Gardens of the Galaxy 2, maybe you heard his band Joseph the Spouse. This guy bleeds. Tom Waits. Loves him more than anything in the world. And it was a pleasure to sit down and talk to this gentleman. Rate and review and subscribe to The 500 on Spotify. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcasts at gmail.com. Follow our Facebook group, The 500 Podcast with Jam. And we have a fan page, The 500 Podcast, run by Crazy, Crazy Evan. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, y'all, nothing left to say. Tom, you want to introduce this? Of course, I'd like to introduce it. Here we go with number 416 out of 500 with Mule Variations by me, Tom Waits. Look back, just come on, Jim. Got to Chris Sullivan, <laughs> Sullivan. Oh, it's Chris Sullivan. It's Chris Sullivan. Oh, Chris, Josh Myers. What is Chris that? Sullivan? You don't even have to like. You don't even have to actually like make words. You literally just have to make like guttural noises. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> that sounds exactly. <laughs> He's always under the stairs, auditioning for Nickelodeon shows. (laughs) I'm a big fan of Pringles. What about you? What are your favorite? Spending a... He's always spending a lot of time at home. Can't go outside. Nowhere to roam. It's there's something really like, like awesome about just talking to yourself in the Tom Waits voice. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. since I've dug into this record, I've Absolutely. just like, you know what? I think I am going to go to Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and it just, it's like, oh, that's my inner Josh. 
That'd be nice if my inner Josh is is Tom Waitsy. Um, that's that's what this whole record is for me is that inner that inner monologue. Well, we were you know it's funny. Uh, I'm saying this to all the listeners, uh, the Fleece Army, is that we were gonna record this like like five months ago because you're so busy and and we wanted to make sure we could do it because you you were like, dude, I got to do this record. I'm a Tom fan. And and then, of course, the world uh, was trust me, dude, if there was any reason that I think the we wouldn't have gotten in the same room together, infectious disease would have been the thing <laughs> it been that great, did man. it. So 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 you're a huge Tom Waits fan. Huge, huge. When I was. I want to say twelve or thirteen. I had a I had a small I had a small ten inch television in my bedroom. And, not the uh, thing that I thought um, you were about to say was ten inches. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I had like this little <laughs> tiny black and white TV with the knob the the clicky knobs on the side yeah. and 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 bunny rabbit antenna, and I got three channels, and one of them was. Uh, PBS and it was like nine o'clock and I clicked over and there was this man sitting at a piano that was sitting in the middle of a 1950s gas station. He's a turnicontinental blue and it was scrawled out across the shoulders of this dying little town. And he was smoking a cigarette and singing about prostitutes and love and despair and i stood about three inches from the screen for an hour trying to figure out what i was watching my my like 12 or 13 year old mind was being blown and it was and it was some austin city limits performance from like late 70s early 80s maybe maybe it was later i don't even know i know this that i spent years searching on the internet trying to figure out who this was what it was and it was tom waits doing this performance and it's i can remember it i can remember it to this day the feeling of like the uncomfortable dark like cozy feeling that that viewing him for the first time gave me how old are you when you said this This is like like 12 or 13 so it was like 1993 or 94. And you were drawn to this that at that early. Like I I'm saying if if I if Tom Waits would have come into my life around that age, I just think I would have dismissed it. But I never saw them though, you know what I mean? So that's a whole different right. thing. Right. Well, I, I the visual the visualization of of seeing this character, I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never seen anything like him. And I'd already been exposed to music outside that my I grew up my favorite musician of all time was one of the other records that I, I was uh telling my my PR person I want to talk to about was any John Prine record you know John Prine was my favorite artist and at 12 or 13 there's no reason there's no Dude, reason what, for what, that what the fuck is going on in your life my, at 12 and 13 that you're digging into like the heaviest shit my dad <laughs> loved it and I didn't get it I didn't understand you know there, there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes yeah I was like trying to figure out visualizing that as a kid, like like a piggy bank, like a slot, like you stuck coins in. Like I, I didn't under, I didn't understand. But anyway, so the so the heavy stuff, I don't know. It spoke to me, and I just had never seen anything like it. So when I when I clicked over, and I was just, I mean, the special ends with him smoking. A, he opens an umbrella under a street lamp that's on stage, and he's 
smoking a cigarette and all of the smoke is coming out from underneath the um, umbrella into the light of the, I, I was just, I was, I was in love. I was, and, it, and it took me years to figure out who it was because at the end of the show, they didn't say. And I was like, who, who, is, who is that? What is this? They were like, give it up for, oh, you guys know who he is. We don't even have to. He's a legend. I think it cut to commercial. It was like late night on PBS. And it was like, and it, he was just like, and I, never, and I never saw her again. And it like faded out. <laughs> it was like, and, it, and, it, and honestly, one of the first records where I, I had like a visceral memory of that was when I came across Mule Variations, the album we're talking really? about. Really? Right? Yeah. Where I was like, this is the guy. So wait, so when did that come back into your life? When did Tom get reintroduced um, then? I mean, college. So it was it okay. was a good it was a good five, six, seven years later um, that I started really digging in to to Tom. And then by that point, you know, I had seen him start popping up in 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 films here and there in any of the the Bram the, Stokers. Yeah, Bram that was Stokers. How, that was that was literally before this record. And like occasionally, I'd go into this really hip clothing store. Uh, that plays a lot of time waits. Like if you, like I said before, before we went on the air, like if people that listen to Tom Waits dress like Mumford and Sons, smell like cigarettes and patchouli, yeah. they've got like forty-five Johnny Depp bracelets on. <laughs> they dance like gypsies. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're just like, so they're, it's like this is the shit that fucking all my cool acting friends. Like this is the shit that you know that my Michael Raymond James. Uh, James Harvey Ward, all the guys, Jason <laughs> all Momoa, the three name, all, all the three name, all guys. the three namers, yeah. guys. But this yeah. is like this is some of the hippest fucking rock and roll I might have ever heard in my life. So right. to be twelve years old and to be able to identify not just the imagery but the music and be like, this is the shit right here. And it's just funny that because in nineteen ninety four, there's no fucking internet, so you have no idea. Mm -mm. So how no did clue. it come back? So you said you're in college. How did you, did it just, somebody was playing it or? Somebody, what year, what year did, did, did this come out? I, it just uh, this came out brain. April 16th, 1999. 1999. So I graduated, I graduated high school in 98. And so I probably heard this in the, in the year 2000, probably as I was entering the, the, the second half of my college time. And and it was it was definitely Filipino box spring hog coming out of my coming out of my dorm room as I was approaching it, and it was my roommate. It was my roommate playing it, and I was just I w again. I was like, who, "Now who is this? Tom Waits? Okay, interesting. Tom Waits." And and I and I we would listen to that record, this record, over and over and over again. And then it slowly started to come back to me as I listened to his voice. I was like, "Wait a minute, this is the, this is that guy yeah. I was watching." This is that guy I was watching, and then I started getting back into into the stuff that came before this, and then have just been a fan ever since. Have you seen him live? I've never seen him live. There's oddly enough, the people who I love the most outside of John Prine, I haven't seen live. I I, I don't. I've been disappointed by live shows before, and there's something. It's almost like the you never want to meet your heroes. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean. Like like the music. Music for me is so viscerally attached to times in my life, moments in my life, people in my life 
that I get protective over a certain song. Like I don't want to hear a song in a, com- in a commercial. I don't want to hear the, the song that I love in a movie that, that makes me think of the song in a different way because I need to preserve the f- that yeah, the way, moment that way in it's time. In, yeah, yeah. Oh, um, dude, it's exactly like me. But what if you met Tom Waits and he was like, so good to finally meet you, Chris. I'm a huge <laughs> fan of Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy Volume 2. That would be Way the end better of it. than the first one. That would be the end of it. <laughs> that would be the end. Like I like I got to I got to actually meet and spend some time with John Prine oh. b- uh, a few months ago before he passed and he and his wife invited invited uh my wife and I we spent New Year's Eve at the Grand Ole Opry watching him perform and it would it would be the same it would be the same thing except except Tom Waits holds more of a mythical quality for me. John Prine has felt like my brother, has felt like my father my whole life. John, Tom Waits feels like like the darkest but most like loving part of myself. Like it's I don't know, there's a there's a real he's a romantic idea. Tom Waits is a romantic idea. Like cuz you can't you know, every actor wants to be a rock star, right? Every, every, 100%. every, yep. I don't, I, I want to be Tom Waits. Like, I don't want to be a rock star. I want to be Tom Waits. But I understand that that entails a huge amount of self-destructive behavior. Uh, living, you don't just dress up like Tom Waits and go, and go perform. You live that life. And there's, and there's just nobody like him. There's, he is 100% singular. You can't say he, he, there's just nobody like him. I, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. Like I said, I only knew of him by name and by the image. Like there's, he's just, he's like that cool rock photographer, that photo that's iconic, like a, like a Danny Clinch photo. You see someone like Tom Waits, like sitting in like the back of a barn with the shirt that looks like it was woven by the pilgrims. Yeah. And he's just, he's got, he's just cool. But and and for me, this is really the first real record of his. If not, I don't want to even say first time I've listened to any of his songs at all because I know they've been playing in the background. But this is the first one I actually dug into, and the same feelings that you had at twelve, I had now at forty, where it was like, why hasn't he gotten into my life sooner? Uh, but also, I, I think sometimes with music, they come in at the right times. And I think, I, if, like yeah. I said, if I would have heard it before, I don't think I would have done it. Uh, but there, like, there's something, there's something magical. There's something cool about him. There's something raw. It's like his lyrics and the music. It, it almost feels like he did this album in a barn, and he kind of did. He kind of did. Yeah, it's a, it's in Northern California, I think. Right. The the. The barn, a buddy of mine lives up, lives up outside of Napa. And he was like, you know, that barn where Mule Variations was recorded, it's still there. It's a studio. It's a studio. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a room. Prairie with- Sun Recording Studios in yeah. Kutati, California. Yeah. I've heard of that place. And, and on top of that, you know, this guy, I think this is one of, if not the very first uh, record that he made of original material after getting sober. And there are very, there are very few artists who, as they get older, get better. And if we were to take his, his, you know, his records from 
from Mule Variations to Bad Is Me, the most the most current record, I am of a of the opinion that the most current record is the best record he's ever made. Like it is, it's astounding that he is the age he is. He got he actually got sober, and and his music got better, which is historically generally not true <laughs> for whatever well, reason. I, I, that's we you know it's funny that you're saying that because anytime I thought of the idea of Tom Waits before I really knew anything about him or knew his music, I just assumed he was like like a you know like a drunk. He's just right. got that like vagabond. Sure, you know even like you said, I've never. I've never honestly watched a live performance, but I could just see him like by the piano, like slurring and, and being like a very, like, like kind of like the Ray Charles kind of. Yeah. He's absolutely, it's like, a, he's like a psychotic, he's like a psychotic Bruce Springsteen mashed up with, with James Brown and Ray Charles. Absolutely. <laughs> That might work at a fair as uh, yeah. as the guy that like runs one of those like those like rides. And like, All right, y'all want to go faster? Who wants to go faster? Yeah, and they're playing like fucking. They're playing like like Papa Roach in the background. Like, Papa Who wants to Roach. go faster? This is my life without. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I do like this Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzard. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. All right, well, let's let's find out a little bit about what got us to this record because this is actually a pretty interesting story. So, like I said, the album came out April 16, 1999, and this is his 12th record. Tom was born in Pomona, California on December 7th uh, in 1949, uh, grew up in a middle-class suburb of San Diego. He frequently, in, in one of his interviews, he says, uh, my... Uh, my uh, Father was an exhaust manifold, and my mother was a tree. <laughs> on television, on television, he, he said that. Yeah, That's incredible. All right. Um, his parents got divorced when he was 10. So he's inspired as a young kid by Ray Charles, Wilson Pickett, James Brown, and was obsessed with Bob Dylan. In high school, he played in bands before dropping out in 1968. And unlike the hippie contemporaries, Waits was infatuated with the 50s beat generation poets, writers, and jazz musicians like Ginsburg, Kerouac, Burroughs, Lord Buckley, and Louis Armstrong. He began hitting the San Diego folk music circuit as a teen in the late 60s and early 70s before moving to Los Angeles in 72 to be a songwriter. And in L.A., he signed with David Geffen's and Elliot Roberts' Asylum Records and proceeded to have little 
critical and no commercial success with his first album, Closing Time, until the Eagles recorded that album's Old 55. He made six more records for Asylum, built his critical and cult following, toured a lot, started acting, got into a relationship uh, romantically and musically with, do you know who this is? Do you know what I'm about to say? Oh, yeah. Uh... BM, baby. Bet motherfucking Midler. Midler. Yeah. When I was like, what Bill Murray. Bill Murray. <laughs> Wouldn't I also not be surprised. <laughs> and so he, he hooks up with Bette Midler and Ricky Lee Jones before being asked to create the soundtrack to Francis Ford Coppola's 1982 film, One from the Heart. It was on that film that Waits met his future wife, collaborator, manager, muse, Kathleen Brennan, who was an assistant story editor. So I actually wanted to ask you this because, like you said, rock stars want to be comics. No, that's that's my that's the goddamn comedy jam. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, uh, actors want to be rock stars. Everybody wants to be a rock star, and everybody kind of wants to be an actor as well. Yeah. So, but actors aren't normally viewed as collaborators. But you're constantly working with people toward the greatest result. What's been your greatest collaboration? Wow. Um... One of the one of my one of my favorite collaborations was the way I, I was on a television show called The Nick that aired on Cinemax. That was a Soderberg. Steve Soderbergh show, and it was Clive Owen, uh, turn of the century medicine in New York City, and I just had never seen television or film get made this way because nobody makes it the way Soderbergh does. Soderbergh does the hiring and then he 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 gives people the space to work and in the 20 episodes of television that that I did for that show, I think I got three acting notes from him. But he would maneuver things in a way that just made everything work. You'd show up on set with your with your props and your costume and your mic ready to go. Nobody had sides. Everyone understood the scene. We understood the, the direction of the whole show. Like that was the other thing is that we would get, we got these binders that were six inches thick with every episode, which you never get the entire season in a binder. And so my scene partner and I could rehearse the entire season of a television series before we ever even got to set. And so- oh, That's gotta be incredible. It was incredible. then you the, know the whole arc and everything your character's gonna go through. Absolutely, and we could come ready with choices. And the way Soderbergh works is you, you better have, if you have something big you wanna try, you better do it on the first take because you're only gonna get one other take and then we're moving on. He's very quick, he knows what he wants, he knows when he has it. And he's not, uh, he's not handing out free takes to people. <laughs> oh. And we would we would rehearse it and he would say okay show me show me what you want to do and which is incredible for a director to even say he would just let us inhabit the space move freely however we wanted to move and we go okay great hand me the camera he would take his camera do a one rehearsal with the camera and then we'd shoot it it was i just had never and you know we shoot all day long we shoot all day long and he has somebody taking all of the, the the one or two takes and putting them onto a hard drive. And when he gets into the car at the end of the day, they hand him a computer with all of the scenes. He edits all of the scenes 
before he even gets home. And the next day, if you want to see those scenes, you, you can see them with temporary music, you know, any of oh. the, 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 the Cliff Martinez stuff. Um, and it was just, it was, it was an incredible experience. And for everything that I learned on that show, it's, I, I can't really apply, I can apply very little of it anywhere else because nobody else operates that way. Does that make sense? You know, it's funny. I, I, that's how I assumed he, that you, what you would have said, not about who you were influenced by, but I knew that you worked with Soderbergh. And I just could imagine he has his hands in everything. Like he's like, he's like, guys, not only uh, did I edit the scenes from yesterday, but I made crab dip for everybody. <laughs> and it's great. And you're everybody like, knows most- Steven Soderbergh <laughs> makes the best crab dip. <laughs> the best crab dip. Not too much uh, mayonnaise. No, it's perfect, dude. All right, where were we with uh, with Tom Waits? All right, so Kathleen turned him on to avant-garde experimental musicians like Captain Beefheart and Harry Parch, which heavily influenced his next career direction. He took his artistic reinvention to Island Records for another seven albums that further cemented his reputation as one of the most successful cult artists ever. This long-awaited follow-up to his final Island Record release 1993's The Black Rider was produced and written by Tom and Kathleen. While utilizing his familiar found instruments, various vocal stylings, experimental recording techniques, and sonic freakouts, he also added the textures of a couple DJs into the mix, and this album went on to win the Grammy for Best Contemporary Folk Album. And in 2011... He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by Neil Young. So that three sentences right there, I feel like, sums up exactly what's going on in this record. Sonic Freakout. He's like playing shit on cardboard box and slamming drawers. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's an album that I expected to be cool, and it did not disappoint. So yeah. uh, I can definitely see why you're a huge fan. I'm curious to see what his other music sounds like. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I mean, the early stuff, like you, were, you mentioned old, 40, old 55 earlier, you know, early on, he sounds like, he sounds like Dylan, you know, he sounds, he sounds like, um, the, 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 the man that he loves, you know, a guy yeah. delivering heartfelt, um, uh, folk ballads. And then he, he, he just, yeah, as he, like you were saying, as he starts playing, as he starts investigating like avant-garde, abstract soundscapes he just becomes he becomes something else and he 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 gets better like you listen to him singing early on and it's very clear and very very high and 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 very dylan-esque but it's not it's it's a little off key and it's uh he he actually gets better as as he gets older and as and as he gets gruffer and as he gets more as he freaks out more it's 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 astounding this record starts out with big in japan and it's and it this record to me i I listened to it all the way through front to back you know two or three times in order to 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 really just to remember those those feelings and this record feels like a a night out in chicago that goes way too late that is full of of debauchery and and threat of violence followed by the remorse of the next morning that that when you wake up and you somehow have escaped a hangover and the sun is shining and the birds are chirping 
And it goes back and forth like that a couple of times where there's this like heavy, like you were saying, those, those soundscapes, that kind of uh, oral freak out and followed by these beautiful sunrise love ballads. And then you get to what's he building in there. And it's like one too many nights in a row of this shit. And now you're having a fucking, uh, uh, you know, withdrawal dream, a panic attack. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, a heroin withdrawal heroin dream detox, about yeah. your next door neighbor. Um, There's a baby on the roof, on the ceiling, like upside down. Yeah, and, and, and the begbies over there. Yeah, like, gee, am I in train spotting? And you get, you get Jesus. just like a really. Uh, first of all, I, I really noticed this time listening through. Tom, Tom Waits really wants to know what you're doing in your house why that house is empty if you'll come over to the house if if he, he sings a lot about home and about what home looks like and what it feels like and going there and leaving there and haunting there and and it's a uh, it's a uh, i think that's where that cozy feeling even though it's so like terrifying and dirty and and visceral he talks about home so much that <laughs> it feels like a warm blanket. I love that. I love it. Here, let's dive into the record, all right? So you already mentioned it opens with Big in Japan, and in my opinion, this felt a little bit like Tom Waits' hip-hop because I love that it's it's bookended with these super, super weird noises. Uh, Peter, play the opening. He's beatboxing, but to get those beatbox noises, he's banging out rhythm on an old chest of drawers that he had recorded by himself and had saved on his phone for many years. The thing that I thought was the funniest thing about this song was that if you read these lyrics, it's like, I got the style, but not the grace. I got the clothes, but not the face. I got the bread, but not the butter. I got the window, but not the shutter. This is like... This is like ironic by Alanis Morissette. Do you know what I mean? This is like mm -hmm. that yeah. fucking the cooler version of Alanis' yeah. song. Tom knows exactly who he is in this moment, right? He spent all these years making music to 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 little, you know, little or or no like widespread success. Even winning a Grammy, winning a Grammy in 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 the modern folk category, they don't even televise that category. No, no, you know what dude, I mean? That's and, buried. And, <laughs> and so he is the he is the most popular, unpopular person in 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 music history. I mean, there's a he's made so many records and there and has such a huge following. And the, and most of the people I know don't listen to him. You know what I mean? Like he. And and to be the joke of being big in Japan, like to walk around the U.S. and <laughs> no one knows who the fuck you are, are like, here. But who you the fuck are you? He's like, don't worry about it. I'm I'm big in Japan, yeah, dude. And and he fully is is fully aware of of who he is and and who he's not. Dude, I'm big in Tulsa. That's pretty fucking good, yeah. right? Tulsa's good. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah. So I found this uh, this little thing from Tom about being big in Japan. He said, it's also kind of a junkyard for entertainment. You can go over there and find people you haven't heard of in 20 years that have moved over there, and they're like gods. Also, people like Clooney are doing commercials here when they do, don't do them anywhere else. So I, I get it. I mean, listen, if you're big anywhere, that's fantastic. I mean, uh, yeah. being big in Japan is fucking phenomenal. 
Um, it's lost in translation. Hundred percent lost in translation. Yeah. So, so we want to talk about being big right now. So you're on This Is Us, and if all of our listeners, the Fleece Army, the Cadougals, if you've been living under a rock, then uh, it's just it's a massive television show. Do you find it tough? to continue to challenge yourself and allow your character to live and grow while having this immense, like, this is us fan expectations? I don't think so. I think um, I think I have been pushed and challenged by Dan Fogelman, the creator of the show, and the writers of the show. And, you know, you, you asked about collaboration. This show is highly collaborative, by the standards of, of network television, the writer's room is open to us. The, uh, uh, the creators are always around. They're on set. The writers are on set. Um, and there's a conversation going on and, um, that type of back and forth allows us to, to insert our, our, um, our ideas, um, the things that we, that, 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 that we're going through the things that are happening in our lives. Uh, for, for instance, th- this last year, my character and his wife had a, had a baby. And in the last year, 13 babies have come into my life through friends and family, two sets of twins, three different, you know, stays in the NICU, home births, hospital births, people being born in cars, like Every, every every which way and and one of the things that 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 came up a lot with the 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 men in my life the the friends the the guys the the fathers was that they, w- they weren't feeling this this love this immediate connection this this magic that everyone was telling them they were supposed to be feeling that that oh you're having a baby you must be so excited well what do you know what i must or what i must not it's like and i went into the writer's room and i was like that's what i would like to explore with toby is not somebody who's who's just happy to be a dad but maybe somebody who's struggling with the idea of connecting with with their son and they were able to to work that into the story and and so those conversations lead to to greater challenges and i and hopefully more interesting stories yeah so the actor has this real emotion and everything behind it besides just reading the script and seeing going oh okay this is what i have to do so you can help delve into that character absolutely that's definitely a part of it a huge part of it we also have the best writers room in in hollywood the the people who come through there are just are just insane insanely talented and dan fogelman who runs our show it, it it's a trickle down from him and his sincerity and his sense of humor and and the love that he shows to people because on top of everything else the thing that i think allows people to connect with our show so so well is that you're you're watching people who actually love each other who actually care about each other who who enjoy being around each other and in a way, that's that's it's it's a it's a show that knows exactly what it is, and it knows exactly how to tell the story it wants to tell, and it tells it from a place that that gives a lot of people a way to connect, whether it's through uh, gender or or mental health struggles or weight issues or anxiety issues or sexuality issues. Like the story is just very very um, uh, intricate and dense and and kind of overly specific, which ironically leaves a lot of room for people to uh to connect 
All right, right on, dude. All right, cool fact about this song. Uh, Primus bassist Les Claypool and guitarist Larry Lalonde played on this song. All right, next one I want to talk about is the second song on the record, Low Side of the Road. All right, inspired by an anecdote about blues legend Lead Belly, who in 1930 pulled out a penknife to defend himself against a gang of white men and got arrested for attempted murder. The nightmares of injustice are further reflected in images in the song like a horse whipping its rider, a dice rolling a gambler, and beating a dog with a bone. Uh, Peter, play a little bit of it. There's so much shit going on and it's so it's so it's so just at like the speed of like three miles an hour. And yet you if you really listen to that song, like you can hear so many little intricate noises. It's incredible, man. It's like one of my favorite songs yeah. on the record, which was which surprised me because generally that's not a song that I would like be like, oh, yeah, dude, I want to listen to that again. It's like it's it's intense. It's dark, you know? Yeah, there's there's a the sim- kind of a symphony of pots and pans, you know, that 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 he he puts together and it, it that song especially almost feels like it's not going to make it. Yeah. Like that song's really trying to get to the end of the song yes. and it might we might not get there. Um and it's it's a you know, it's 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 a I mean, it's a perfect, it's a perfect metaphor and a perfect song for, for where we are right now with everything going on, uh, in the black community and, and, and that kind of struggle that no matter, no matter what, like our, that kind of plotting, like we've been doing this for so fucking long, I hope, you know, and, and, uh, you know, lead belly for, for, for me as a, you know, I guess at that time, you know, in between hearing Tom Waits for the first time and hearing this record again, there was Nirvana's Unplugged album, which is the first time I heard Lead Belly's name spoken when they covered uh, uh, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? And the idea of, of, of all of these, these artists, Nirvana and Lead Belly and, and Dylan and Tom Waits being connected and that, and that if you're paying attention if you're paying attention to the music and 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 you're involving yourself in it, you're gonna learn some. You're gonna learn some things about where where we've been, where this country's been, where musicians and artists have been in the past, and how you know you look around and not much has changed. Yeah, uh, I you couldn't have said any better. All right, jumping on to the third song, "Hold On." So this was the album's only single. This is a love song story about perseverance. To me, it reminds me of Bruce Springsteen. Uh, Peter, play the chorus. You got to hold on, hold on. Baby, got to hold on and take my hand. Standing right here, you got to hold on. This song is how I felt waking up in Chicago at, a, at the age of 24. You know, just kind of, the, there, there's redemption in the morning. You know what I mean? You've got yeah. these these first two songs hit you hit you so hard, 
big in Japan. And then, uh, and then that, that kind of slow plod and, and then, and then there's this beautiful love ballad. Yeah. You just got to hold on that hangover. It's going to go away. Just have some Pedialyte and have a cheese. God bless your little crooked heart. (laughs) All right. So he wrote this with his wife and he said, I thought that was a good thing to say in a song. Everything is trying to stay on the ground. Take my hand. Stand right here. Hold on. Uh, So being that This Is Us and a lot of the shit you've done has been so big, uh, and anyone on social media uh, will let you know while crying right after each episode how much they loved your show, how do you find your anonymity? Because you're a 6'4", dude. Like you stick out. You're not only on a on a huge, you know, popular TV show, but you're a big dude. Like you're tall as fuck. Six four. I'm five nine, bro. Yeah, I mean, my 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 anonymity is not um is not that precious to me. I I, I don't have uh I have I have a fairly good relationship with with being recognized or or um the people who who have viewed things that I've, I've been a part of. Um, but yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I don't, I do, I stick out wherever I go. And so it's, it's one of those things that I had to kind of, um, come to terms with when this is us, because this is us is really the thing. Like, first of all, nobody's recognizing me from guardians of the galaxy two, uh, two very few people saw the Nick, you know? Uh, and so this is us is, is, is the thing that, that changed things. And I had to, I had to kind of get over my faux humility about it, you know. Oh, oh no, I don't. I don't really want to be bothered right now. And 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 my wife Rachel had kind of helped me come to a place of of understanding about it. And, and she was just like, people have had emotional experiences with something that you've created, and if they if they come across you, they they want to let you know that they appreciate that. Sometimes it comes off weird. Sometimes people don't know what to say. Sometimes, and but ninety nine percent of the time, it is a lovely encounter. Oh, that's so great! You were talking about how being like you're like people start complimenting you, and you're like too ashamed. Like I always like turn into like the elephant man, and they're like, "You did so good tonight," and I'm just like, "Ah, don't look at me." Yeah, uh, but you have to, you know, you forget that that what you're doing, people love. Like people, you know, we whether it's through stand up or acting or or what or this podcast, it's like people feel so connected to us, and it's beautiful. And now I'm able to like be like, oh my god, my problem now is that I try to become friends with them, where I'm just like, oh no, we should <laughs> hang out. And they're like, I just wanted to say no. hi and I liked you. <laughs> Yeah, they're trying to get away. You won't let go of their hands. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah dude. I'm like, I mean, serious. Come on. Would you want my number or my email or anything? I'm like, nah, dude. Just wanted to tell you it was a good. I'd show. love to hear more of your thoughts on uh, my work. Lately. <laughs> All right, uh, the next one. Get behind the mule. I want to play a little bit about this because it's this kind of made me laugh. All right, Peter, play the chorus to get behind the mule. Got to keep behind the mule. Yeah. This sounds like something Jason Momoa plays in the background when he throws axes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm telling you, dude, this is the coolest fucking shit out there. 
This is like full on gypsy dancing. He's got so much swag. So much swag. And and that's the thing I think about Tom that is so cool is this that, you know, you could sit there and say someone like Paul McCartney is this great songwriter and he sings blues, he has swag, but then you meet him and he's just this little bubbly guy. But from everything I know about Tom, it's just like, dude, he's just the fucking man. Yeah, and he, he seems he seems to live it. You know, I'm sure I'm sure there's I'm sure there's moments where you catch Tom Waits in a in a you know pa- plaid pajama bottoms and a pair of slippers. But it, it's, you think he's wearing sleeve sleeves? You think he's got you know what I mean? Pants? Like like he's at some point you can't you can't wear denim and leather your whole life. Uh, no, you have but there's, no. But there's, there's, no, I'm a, Chris, you, I'm, here's the thing. I'm not cutting you off because this is, dude, people like Tom, people like Johnny Depp, people like Slash have to be seen wearing the outfits that we expected right. them. Dude, if I exactly. saw Slash wearing Lululemon, I would freak out. Do you know Absolutely. what I mean? Tom Tom Waits Tom Waits has has a, has a has a contract with his audience. He says that I'm going to be this character if you continue to enjoy this character. And I think he is not only a musician and not only a great actor, but an incredible performance artist. If you if you go go down a, a YouTube rabbit hole of his interviews on television, they are yeah. poetry in motion. He is he is a walking art experiment his his answers are poetry you know he he says i I, what i grew up on i grew up on the corner of bedlam and mayhem um and he just has these he has this this relationship with the public that is that is so playful and and you can tell that that he is 100 percent committed and is not taking any of this seriously (laughs) yeah Hey, this is Chris Santos, host of Delirious Nomads, the Blacklight Media Podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Delirious Nomads is a podcast about all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports. And me being a chef and all, we'll be riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. All right. um, So then... We get to House Where Nobody Lives. It's about the history of an abandoned house and the past experiences contained within Peter Play 318. What makes a house grand? Oh, ain't the roof or the doors. I mean, for me, this is just hammering in how incredible of a songwriter and how deep of a lyricist that this man is 
it is fantastic, that line, you know? If there's love in a house, it's a palace for sure. That's It's so simple, yet it just needs to be said. And the way the way that we, we all, the things that mean something to us personally, you know, I, I think the, the end of that, the end of that verse, he said, and to me, it's just, it's just a house where nobody lives. You know, that, 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 that yeah. house at some point I'm sure was filled with people and filled with love and, and to, to, to somebody that house, that abandoned house means something. Yeah. Uh, well, it's funny because you, we were, I was talking to one of my writers, Morty, and, uh, he reminded me that you did a podcast with our good friend, Michael Rosenbaum yeah. called in love. And you guys explored with your guests the dynamics of their relationships. Yeah, it was you know mostly we we I think we got eighteen to twenty episodes through it. It was mostly couples. Sometimes it was best friends. Um, sometimes it was individuals. And yeah, we were we were interested in kind of delving into what makes what makes for positive human interaction and. Uh, we would have gone on longer, except uh, uh, we had to either double down or, or cut and run. And, and I, I had just found out that uh, that my wife was pregnant with our first child, and uh, he will arrive in a couple of months here. And so I, I didn't, uh, oh. I didn't really have, uh, you know, Congrats, three or four, five hours a week to be going uh, recording podcasts. Yeah. So it's sad to see it see it end, but love Rosie. But. But still, though, still, though, you you did you said 18 to 20 episodes. Yeah. So uh, why did that appeal to you? And what was the biggest lesson you learned? You know, one of one of the things the, the podcast appealed to me because I like talking to Rosie. He has a podcast called Inside of You, where we first had a, had a, a great conversation. And then he said, hey, we should do our own thing. And. You know, these days we're, we are so disconnected we've never been more connected and we've never been more disconnected all at the same time. And, and it, the thing that appealed to me was sitting down with, with people for 60 minutes to an hour and having a, a dedicated conversation on a topic. We just don't, we don't do it anymore. That's, that's kind of why I love podcasts. It's why I like going on them. It's like why I like listening to them because it's a form of conversation that doesn't happen a lot anymore. Yeah. Well, what was the biggest lesson that you learned out of talking to all those couples? You know, the biggest, oh, geez, the biggest lesson that I've, that I've learned has mostly been about rigorous honesty. Not necessarily, I'm not talking about being honest with other people. I'm talking about we can't, we can't be honest with other people until we are honest with ourselves. Honest with ourselves about what we need, what we want what we're feeling, um, and myself included, most people when they're having feelings have a very hard time even identifying what that feeling is. And so when I say rigorous honesty, I mean like spending the time to investigate myself, the, what, I, what I believe, what I think, what I feel, what I need, what I want, so that I can communicate it clearly to my beautiful wife. I say that in that tone because she's walking by. <laughs> That's the soundbite, dude. That's seriously that exactly what you said right there is the soundbite I'm pulling because that was fantastic. All right, moving on. Cold water. This was inspired by folk and blues legend Lead Belly. This is one of several weight songs about living the life of a hobo outside of society. And in my opinion, Tom went full hobo music. Uh, Peter, play 
I'm just hoping that, you know, I'd read the lyrics and I know I this is wrong what I'm about to say, but it's like, I it feels like he's talking about Doritos Cool Ranch. You know what I mean? Because that's what it sounds like. It's like, it got some Cool Ranch still. Cool Ranch still. I haven't had a Cool Ranch Dorito in a long time. Dude, we are sending you a case, bro. Oh man, <laughs> dude, if you're you're about to be a you're about to be a dad. We're hooking you up. <laughs> has there ever we're gonna has get there, a mini Cool Ranch? Has there ever been a song that I mean, if you had any questions about this record being recorded in a barn, you hear that song. I mean, half of these songs sound like he's singing into a coffee can, which he very well may be. Like yeah. he's got a big a big Folgers coffee can up next to the mic, and he's. And, and some, there's definitely someone with just a pot and a wooden spoon in the back. And yes. the, the audacity, <laughs> like, bing, bing. the audacity of an artist to be, to take this, to take this label's money and to pay somebody a session fee to bang on a pot makes me so happy. <laughs> Dude, he employs 90% of the pot bangers in music. Listen, you know that, right? Not, yeah. Like the pot bangers union, they, they love Tom Waits. <laughs> um, so like I said, this is this is full hobo music. When I hear this song, I envision a knapsack on a stick, hitting the rails, sitting around a fire. Um, so with many people having to re-examine their lives and career right now with what's going on with the with COVID, uh, I wanted to get to you, the beginning of yours. I want you to tell me the worst audition you ever had. The worst audition I ever had was for Trey Anastasio's Broadway show. Um, he wrote all the music for for a Broadway musical called Hands on a Hard Body, and <laughs> and it was based on a true story about one of these contests where at the local car dealer, you come and you put your hand on the truck and whoever has, whoever can keep their hand on the truck, the longest wins the truck. Um, yeah. Odd topic for a Broadway musical, but Trey Anastasio, what, what else is he going to write? I was hoping it was going to be like fish. Yeah. Come on, everybody. We're fish. We're playing for six hours straight. Yeah, just roller skates. And yeah. Um, <laughs> And I and I I got in there and and I was like perfect for this show, blue collar, yeah. beard, big, you know, bluesy, and I sat in, stood next to the piano and they started playing the song and I started singing one hundred percent off key, not a single note on key. And it was the first time in my life where I where I stopped. I, about eight bars in, I was like, you know what? I don't know what's going on right now. I'm going to stop and start over because that was terrible. And I opened as a joke. I opened the top of the piano because I I was singing and I couldn't. I was standing three feet from the fucking piano and I couldn't I couldn't hear it. And so I, as a joke, like opened the top of it. It was one of those upright pianos sing, thinking that I'd be able to hear it more. Started singing again. Still, I've ne this never happened to me. I couldn't find a note. I couldn't find a note. And Trey Anastasio is sitting there with a whole table full of people and they're looking at me and I'm looking at them and I'm, I, 
I, I finished the song, did my scene, nailed the scene. Nailed the and, scene, and, yeah. and walked out going, I'll never see any of you ever again. Have a good one. <laughs> oh, that's, that's fucking It was brutal. embarrassing. Can you sing? Are you, like, are you like a trained singer at all? Like, or is this just something you're like, I guess I could do it. Oh, no, absolutely. I've been singing for a long time. I've, I, was, I did three Broadway shows. Um, uh, the, the, just weren't feeling it that day. I, something, I literally, my ears weren't working. I, 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 I couldn't figure it out. It was very embarrassing. Um, but yeah, no, I've, I've been singing my whole life. I, um, I've put, I put out a record back in 2014 in, in, uh, in New York and, uh, just actually just finished recording a new record with, um, uh, Dawes frontman uh, Taylor Goldsmith, um, producing and writing Joseph, the spouse is, is the name I perform under. Um, and it's, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, I started writing again and, and, uh, and Taylor and I actually, I, I, we became friends through this is us. He's married to, to Mandy Moore. And, um, one day I was writing a song and it, and it was 100% a John Prine song. I was like, this is the most John Priniest John Prine song I've ever written. And I sent him the first verse and a little demo of me playing it. And I said, you want to write a John Prine song? And he said, absolutely. And he sent me a verse back. And then I sent him half a chorus and he finished the chorus. And then, and we went back and forth and literally 50-50 over text message wrote a John Prine song called uh, Deaf Ears that uh, uh, was kind of what started our songwriting partnership. Dude, you guys were like postal service. Yeah. It's like, you know, yeah. remember that band? Yeah. That's what they did. Absolutely. That's incredible. Well, it's funny that we're that we're, you're talking about building a song because the next song I want to talk about. You ready for this segue? Yep. What's he building? So this was inspired by beat era voiceover artist Ken Nordine. This chronicles a noisy neighbor's observations as they escalate from innocent mistrust to full-blown absurd paranoia and in my opinion it is one of the weirdest things i've ever heard uh peter play a little taste there's poison underneath the sink of course but there's also enough formaldehyde to choke a horse what's he building in there Oh God! All right, that's enough. It's creeping the shit out of me, dude. It's taking. I'm having a bad trip right now, dude. But you know what's funny yeah. is like I talk about how I, I'm like this song kind of creeps me out. It, it's 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 you know it's right in the middle of the record, and maybe this is like his palate cleanser to bring us into the next song. Yeah, I think it's it's that fever dream, man. One too many nights out, and he starts he starts. I, this I, I think. Obviously, it's inspired. I, I think I had heard him in an interview talk about uh, this. He was trying to make this into a song, and it just wasn't working. Until finally, he just was like, "Let me just read these lyrics." And because there's we'll, no melody, Chris, there's no we'll melody. Get the, we'll get the pot. Yeah, you, you, we'll get the pot bangers yeah. back in here and uh, <laughs> hit the pot bangers union back in, and we'll get, get it the, all get fixed. The pot bangers and, union, the the jug, the jug blowers that like. That big job but he, thing. he genuinely he genuinely gives you a sense of dread and a sense of like foreboding and you're like it, it feels like the song is going to come out of your headphones and and kill you it's yeah. it's amazing hey this is mike weeby and i'm the singer in a band called the riverboat gamblers and i'm zach blair i play guitar in a band called rise against mike and i also have a band called the draculas and we also have this great amazing new podcast called zach and mike make three 
Yeah, each week we're going to ask ourselves and we're going to ask our guests what three favorite things they are into at that moment or in their entire lives. And then we're either going to agree with them or we're going to make fun of them. And uh, you're going to listen to it and you're going to like it or we will make fun of you. How about that? I just flipped it on you, the person listening to this right now. But we're going to do it every week here on the Sound Talent Network. Once again, it's called Zach and Mike Make Three. Yeah. <laughs> So Tom explained this song as we seem to be compelled to perceive our neighbors through the keyhole. Uh, so Tom Waits is uh, actually named Peeping Tom Waits uh, because <laughs> it's a little creepy. I didn't know that he was a voyeur. What I so I uh, the way I figured out this question is one of my my creative producer and former guests on the show, my buddy Avery Pearson, is obsessed with the show The Americans and you played a Russian operative. So this is the yeah. question he wanted me to ask you. How does a guy from Sacramento get cast as a Russian spy? Yeah, so the 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 as a testament to my my accent in that show, he was a German, he was a German assassin and the, I, I got the audition and they were just like, just whatever accents you can do. And I was like, okay. And I, I, I was able to do a pretty good French accent, a pretty, I, I do a great Irish accent. Okay. British. I was like Russian I can do. Um, and I did all, I did four or five different accents in this audition, none of which were German. And later that day, my agent called and said, you got the job. They want you to play it German. And I said, you know, that wasn't one of the voices that I did. <laughs> and I was like, and, the, and they're like, and, you're, and you're, you're due on set tomorrow at 8 a.m. And so I immediately called uh, a dialect coach who I'd worked with uh, in one of the Broadway shows I was in. And I was like, uh, I just need you. Here's the script. I need you. And he'll do this for 150 bucks. Yeah. Here's the script. Can you read these lines with a German accent, record them and send them back to me, please? And just overnight, I was just listening to the sounds. And so I came in to the to the on set and I was I was, you know, it was something like uh, Germans kind of can I buy you? Can I buy you a drink? And and the the uh, the director cut. Can you can you pitch it up a little bit? And I was like, yeah, I could pitch it, pitch it up a little bit, but the one thing that I wanted to avoid was sounding like like uh, the butterfly from A Bug's Life, you know, or or or, or uh, Dieter from, uh, uh, from Now's the time in Sprockets when we dance. Like I was like, I was like, that's what I have to avoid because yeah. I desperately want to do that. <laughs> and I started with this low accent, and he kept going, "Can you make it a little higher? Can you make it a little higher?" And by the end of it, I'm I'm very much like, "Oh, hello." <laughs> Very good to, very good to see you. Welcome to my hotel room. Now's the time when I will explode you. Um, and cut, cut. Uh, that's perfect. Yeah, cut. Oh perfect. Great. They almost blew my arm off in that show. Really? There was a big, there, yeah. There was a big shootout scene at the end, yeah. and I was supposed to get shot in the arm and the wrist. And the explosives guy, instead of putting a little bullet hole explosive here, put a bomb explosive on my wrist. And we're doing this shootout scene, and it's little snaps, you know, pop, 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 pop. And they go, "Now, don't forget, when this goes off, throw your hand back." Like, oh, I've been shot in the arm. My. You know that 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 scene in Saving Private Ryan where the bomb explodes next to the guy and it yeah. goes ooh and everything goes quiet. That's what the rest of the scene was for me. My 
I look down and the sleeve of my long sleeve shirt is gone. And my entire lower forearm is covered in blood. Thank God, 95% of it was stage blood. But like, oh, I had you to go were... to the emergency room. I thought, oh. I thought they had broken my arm. Oh they, my God. Through the, le- through the leather bracelet and the metal protector, the explosive had cut a circle into my wrist. It was crazy. It was crazy. Do you have a yeah. scar from it still? No, I did for a while and it seems to have, seems to have healed up. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, it was insane. Avery is going to be so happy when, when he listens to this and we talked about that. So that was for you, Abe, yeah. wherever you are. Um, all right, let's jump to chocolate. Jesus. This was one of your favorites. So this secular hymn was recorded outside with a rooster crowing throughout and a fantastic blues harp solo by the legendary Charlie Musselwhite. Uh, Peter, play a little bit. So why do you connect with this one so much? Um, there's... First of all, it sounds like he got the whole band in a coffee can this time. And there's yeah. just, you know, it's sonically, sonically, it, 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 it lives almost, even the bass lives in treble. The whole thing is high end. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there was something when I first heard it, you know, I, I, I went to a Catholic high school. I, I grew up in the Methodist church. I, I went to a Catholic university. Um, and although I wasn't terribly, uh, uh, re- you know, I wasn't hardcore religious or anything, I had just been around it my whole life. And so it might have been the first time I had heard something kind of intentionally, intellectually sacrilegious or, or something poking a little bit of fun at, at that kind of faith. Yeah. And... I don't know. As a as a as a nineteen twenty year old, it's exactly what I wanted to hear. So that's funny that you said that because this is about an immaculate confection. Uh so to to Tom, this was more like a version of a chocolate Easter bunny. As Tom said, someone might think it's blasphemous, but it's actually kind of a grassroots spirituality. So I think it's a good little take on that. All right, moving on. Uh, Filipino box spring hog Peter, kick it. Round snake piccata with great sandwich. Old brown belly with a yellow wig. Taint the minced meat filigree. This is my jam. Yeah, watching you dance to this song oh, made this man. one of my favorite songs on the record, bro. <laughs> That that's my hype song. Like that is the song. If I need to get going, I put that song on as loud as I can. There, I I, I was doing I was doing a, a play in Chicago at the the Goodman Theater, and and it was uh, a Eugene O'Neill uh, play called um, The Hairy Ape, and it was it was this like angry, violent. Uh, 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 rage against the proletariat class and the wealthy, the wealthy class, and, and all these things, and, and we would crank that fucking song, and and stomp our feet and beat our chests and and get all sweaty and go out on stage. There's half of that song is 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 a recipe on how to barbecue a pig. <laughs> it's it's you gotta slap that hog, roll him over twice. 
Baste them with a sweeping broom. Put like the it, marinade yeah. and the glaze yeah, on it's, it. It's in, it's, there's, the, it is a one-of-a-kind song. There's nothing else like it. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. I wish he had a cooking show on the Food Network. Tonight we're going to do yeah. some chicken marsala. Got to get the wine and cut the garlic up. God, I love singing like him. Amazing. I don't. I don't know if it's a real thing, but I picture. I picture like a box spring with all that shit burnt out, and they've got fire underneath it, and they've taken half a pig and spread it out because they didn't have a grill big enough to to grill this thing, and they have to cook it on a box spring and baste it, you know, with a with a broom. Like it's just, it's violent, dude. It's that hobo life, bro. This is that hobo <laughs> lifestyle. I'm telling you. Yeah. Jason it's in Momoa, a train yard. Axe music. This is Axe music. But this is about a, a band of, of misfits, a bunch of freaky characters, doing a feast at a junkyard. So for, we're talking about bands and misfits. How did you put together Sully and the Benevolent Folk? So that was, that was a musical experiment back in, in New York. Um, that that was that that record I released. I, I in order to challenge myself while I was doing my first Broadway play, which was only two hours of work a day, I started writing music and I wrote a song a day for thirty days. So I would start in the morning with lyrics, then I would take this microphone and this computer and go to my dressing room with a ukulele. I just bought this ukulele and I wanted to learn how to play it, and. I would I would put it to music, record it on GarageBand, and post it on Facebook every day. And when I ran out of ideas, I would say, "All right, well, what does it what does it sound like to write a song for Tom Waits? What does it sound like to write a song for John Prine? What does it sound like to write a song for you know whoever?" And and I would write in their style sometimes. W- with their voice, um, and I came up with I came out with a couple of Tom Waits tunes after that record. But the Benevolent Folk essentially was when we would play around when we would play around New York. I the very first show we played, there were twenty five musicians, you know, over the course of the evening, playing all kinds of weird shit. And as we would play other shows, obviously all those people can't can't come. But it was this ever-rotating group of people. It was like, oh, we only have... All right, but tonight we only have guitar, accordion, and bass. So that's the show tonight. Or we don't... Uh, you know, the piano player can play, and we have, uh, we have a banjo player, and that's it. So it was this kind of ever-rotating group of, of New York musicians who would gather at whatever club we were at and play play this the these these songs you know we i had 30 i had ended up writing like 34 days in a row 34 songs narrowed it down to like 10 recorded a record um yeah we played around man it was it was a good time that's great um all right and then the final song on the record is come on up to the house uh peter play the first verse well the mood is broken and the sky is cracked come on the moon is broken and the sky is cracked. Come on up to the house. The whole the whole record is about is about coming home, trying to figure out what home is, where where you're going. Uh, the 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 the, tr- the terrible terrible trip to get there, like leaving home, the hobo life, riding trains, living in a junkyard, and and finally the, he ends the record with just just come home, just come on home. Little known fact that we found was that he actually had moved out of his house 
uh, right before he started writing this record because he had a termite infestation. So every song is about him waiting to get. I'm just making that up. But how dope yeah, would that be? Being it, tempted, just, getting his getting his house tented. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's got he's got water bugs. All right. So so this song what is basically they, what are they killing what, in there? Like, what is the why is there's what is this bug on here? They're scratching in the walls. So this is basically he ends the album with a gospel hymn or what you could call a funeral march, and this is basically an encouraging and compassionate offer of relief from this weary world. So we touched on it a moment ago. Uh, you had mentioned what's currently going down with everything, all the injustices in the world that that I, myself, and many others are protesting against for equal rights. How have you navigated these waters recently, and how have you been able to maintain like a Zen state? Um, I, I haven't. I, I have been very very angry and I've been very sad and that is, is where I have to live. That, that is where I have to start, right? With everything going on, we all have, we all have a responsibility to take care of each other and we haven't been doing that for hundreds of years. And there there's an idea that we want to help and, and some of us want to help and we don't know how. And I think that the first step for me, what I've been doing over the last couple of weeks on, on, on top of speaking out and saying the words black lives matter and making donations to organizations that are fighting these fights is I've been educating myself. I've been uh, listening and watching and trying to understand as best as I, I possibly can, and I never will understand it fully, the black experience, the suffering that's been going on. Because I consider myself a loving, non-racist person. Um, I don't think I have been living an anti-racist life. I have not, I have not put my feelings into action. And before I can change my actions, before I can change my feelings, my beliefs, I have to challenge my mind in the way that I think. And that's, that starts with a reprogramming and that starts with a lot of information. So I've been taking in a lot of information. And if anyone is looking for information, there's a post on my Instagram account called the All Lives Matter Challenge because I had had such a problem with people responding to Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter that I needed to talk to them about it. Um, and I, I found a link. Mandy Moore actually posted this link that is a list of resources, anti-racist resources for white people. If you want to educate yourself, if you want to, to change the way you think, if you want to challenge your, yourself, um, there's there's an entire list of, of resources there to do that. Trust me, I completely agree with what you're saying. Once you post something and you have a fan base and people just want to throw up all lives matter or try to go against like this and you just want to like shake them and be like, how the fuck do you not get it? Yeah. You know, it's it just it dilutes it dilutes the conversation and it and it, and it creates a lack of focus that 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 is unhelpful 
I I don't believe that if 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 you if you are posting those things that it makes you a racist person. I think it just makes you it, 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 you're you're you just don't understand what's going on and what's being said. And you know these the the only the only way to growth is through pain. The only way to through change is is through is through some kind of friction and. And and we can we've been pushing against it for a long time. And and if we allow if we allow our if we allow our minds to be challenged and we allow our hearts to be opened, then there's so much room right now for so much change. Yeah. Uh, also, if uh, just for all the listeners out there, I know we we talk about it at the beginning of the podcast, but we have on the 500 website. Uh, my producer Jeremiah put all the links to ways you can donate, ways you can help, information. Uh, yeah, so help as best as you can. All right, you want to do some facts and get out of here? Let's do it. Go, come on up to the facts. Nope, to the house. <laughs> For the facts and the facts. All right, here we go. After regretting doing a voiceover for a dog food commercial in 1981, Tom swore he'd never allow his songs in any advertising. He said... It has always been my belief that anything that degrades the value of the work degrades the artist. So he listened to you. He actually, though, sued Frito-Lay over a commercial where they did an impression of him. They ended up paying him more than $2 million. The impression was so good that Tom Waits thought he recorded it for them in a drunken stupor. $2 million is way more than he would have gotten paid to do the job. For sure. So what's the dumbest thing you've done, Hammered? Um, Well, there was a bonfire on, on a beach. Uh, and I thought I had stoked the bonfire with a little bit of gasoline. Um, and the gas, the bonfire jumped through the stream of gasoline back into the gas can that I was holding. Now, luckily for me, gas is very flammable, but it is not highly combustible. Um, I didn't quite know that at the time, so I did a full-blown 1980s run across the beach and dive into the sand, thinking I would explosion was imminent. Yeah. Turning around only to see a a fountain of fire coming out of the nozzle of the gas can. Well, I ran back up to this plastic gas can and kicked it into the lake, uh, where the uh, plastic shell began to melt, creating a lake of fire. And so my, my friends and I decided that we would uh, dance around it and swim underneath it. And um, yeah, I'm glad I don't drink anymore. Josh is the yeah, point, dude, yeah. you know, oh, the point God, is, uh, is uh, <laughs> things are a lot clearer now and uh, life is a lot better. All right. Uh, so Tom went into acting and did multiple roles for Francis Ford Coppola, one of them being Renfield in Bram Stoker's Dracula in 192, where he played a servant to Dracula. It was kind of weird. So my question to you is, what's the weirdest role you had to play? The weirdest role that I've had to play so far has got to be Taserface in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I mean, to be dressed up in full... Uh, space alien makeup the first time you meet Sylvester Stallone is is just it's just an odd experience 
You know, it's hey, just it's a weird. <laughs> yeah, it's up taser face. <laughs> here's here's the here's the crazy part. This man, this man, I don't know if he does his research or whatever, but you know, he also came on This Is Us. He walked right into the hair and makeup trailer and goes, "Hey, it's taser face." Yeah, he did. <laughs> How would he have known? He doesn't know. I, I, incredible. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was just a bizarre, bizarre experience to uh, to uh, beat the shit out of Michael Rooker in a uh, in a football field sized spaceship in a warehouse in Atlanta. <laughs> That's perfect. You know? All right. So last fact: Tom was born the day after the death of one of his heroes, blues legend Lead Belly. So I would ask you this: Who is one of your heroes who died before your time? Um, you know, I I I felt uh, over over the years a real a real connection um, to John Lennon and his life, his music, obviously in in and out of the Beatles, um, and the things that he did, you know, with with his life on top of his music, uh, were were always kind of profound and uh, and loving to me. So probably John Lennon. I mean, I, it's a toss up between him and George. They're between who I think are the uh, were the best, and I love Paul too. And I can't shit on Ringo. I cannot yeah. shit on him, but but it's like it's definitely just such an incredible human being. Much like Tom Waits, you know what I yeah, mean? Absolutely. Just like yeah, just absolutely. a just a complete and utter artist. And and I gotta say this, Chris, this was so much fun, dude. Dude, I had a great time. Thank you so much for coming on, brother. The one and only Chris Sullivan, everybody. If you're looking for him on social media, on Instagram, he's at Sullivan Grams. On Twitter, he's at Sullivan Tweet. And check out his band on Instagram, at Joseph the Spouse. And make sure you watch the new season of This Is Us. Go back, watch The Nick. All of it's good, guys. Now, we just listened to Tom Waits from 1999. Our music director, Little Matty Penfield, picked Mark Langan. If you're a fan of Tom Waits, then you have to know about Mark Lanigan. He began his music career as a singer in the Seattle grunge band Screaming Trees. He's gone on to play with Queens of the Stone Age. He's one half of the Gutter Twins with Greg Dooley of Afghan Wigs. And you can check out his new album, Straight Songs of Sorrow. It came out in May. Check out the slow-burning track, Ketamine. Oh, you know I love that shit. And you can stream that song on Spotify. Find the link on our website, 500podcast.com. And if you're in a band and you want your music featured on the 500 website because you were influenced by one of these albums or artists, I want you to send me the music, 500podcast at gmail.com. Next week, it's Van Halen week as we go through their 1978 debut album, Van Halen. Ooh, y'all been waiting for this one. Y'all got some homework to do. Listen to the album on Spotify. Stay fleecy and doogle to the true doogle doogles. Yes, we're out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist 
Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Hi, this is Paul Phelps. And this is Monica Strutt. And we're from the Daily Music Business Podcast. We're joined by a number of other really great hosts in creating daily content with great advice for independent musicians just like you. That's right. We put out episodes daily on all topics from music marketing to branding, advice on signing with a manager and label and anything else you need to up-level the business side of your music career. We've got it covered. Subscribe to the Daily Music Business Podcast today on your favorite podcast catcher. Subscribe today to the Daily Music Business Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Next Chapter Podcasts.